beginning, remember I handed you a white card that first week and I said, write down your miracle that you're praying for. And then over the last few weeks, we've talked about how if you want to see a miracle in your life, you need to position yourself to be where God is working. And one way we do that is by obeying. It puts us on the spiritual front line so we see Jesus showing up and showing off. And we talked about having the right eyesight so that we recognize how God is working and what he's doing in our life. So we, we recognize when he's doing a miracle. We've talked about being faithful. And many times we miss a miracle because we give up before Jesus shows up. And then we talked about a sacrifice, how a miracle always involves some investment from us, sometimes time or money or resources or emotions. And then we talked about how sometimes you don't even plan for a miracle. You just end up in a storm and Jesus shows up supernaturally. And then last week, our guest speaker, Sam, he talked about trusting God. And in the midst of trusting him, we see miracles. You know, when we handed out these cards at that first week, I wrote down something on mine, my miracle that I was praying for, and that still hasn't happened. And that's what we're going to talk about today is when you pray for a miracle, you ask for a miracle, you position yourself to see a miracle, and then Jesus for some reason waits. He doesn't show up and show off. And so the last sign miracle in the book of John is the story of Lazarus. And it's found in John chapter 11, and it is super long. Really, I was trying to see how fast I could read this long passage of scripture, and every way I read it, I was like, my entire 20 minutes is spent reading this. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the Alex version of the story, and then we're going to pull out some things from a couple of these verses. And so Jesus was hanging out with his disciples, his closest friends, and he gets this message from his friends, Mary and Martha, that his other friend, their brother, Lazarus, was sick. And Jesus hears that he's sick, and they say, come and heal him. And he says, you know what? I'm not going to go right now. I'm going to wait because the end of the story doesn't end in death. And his disciples said, good, because he lives in Bethany, and that's a suburb of Jerusalem, and the religious leaders hate you in Jerusalem, and they want to kill you, so let's not go there. And so they stay, they stick around, and they wait a couple days, and then Jesus says, okay, now let's go and check on Lazarus. And um, they say, why are we going there? We're going to end up dead. They hate you there. And Jesus says, you know what? The things that I do are not things that I want to hide. I do good things that people need to hear about. If I was doing something sneaky, I would do it at night. I would do it behind closed doors. I wouldn't let anybody to know. But he's like, the things that I'm doing, I'm doing openly and I'm not hiding from anyone. We should go. And then he says, Lazarus has fallen asleep. I need to go wake him up. And they said, why would you wake up somebody who's sleeping? I hate being woken up when I'm sleeping. So Darbs does this thing sometimes. Like we'll be watching a television show and I'll fall asleep on the couch and I'll start snoring. And apparently I snore really loudly. I never hear it, I'm asleep. I snore very loudly. And so she'll come over and shake me awake or she'll come over and tap the side of the couch and say, wake up. No one enjoys being woken up, right? The disciples are like, don't go wake him up. If he's sleeping, that means the fever broke. He's probably getting better. Don't go wake him up. Plus we'll probably get killed if we go because everybody hates you there. And he says, look, he's not really asleep, he's dead. I was saying asleep, but what I'm really saying is he's dead. And then Thomas, who we know is doubting Thomas, right? He goes, oh good, let's just all go and die now. We can all be like Lazarus and go and get killed. And so they go to Bethany, and by the time they get there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. And um, 
Mary and Martha are there mourning, and as soon as Martha hears that Jesus has come, she comes out and she goes right up to him and she says, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And I think we've all been there in that moment. We'll talk a little bit about that. That moment where we're like, Jesus, where were you? Why did you wait? And Jesus tells her, he's like, he goes ahead and tells her the end of the story. He's like, I'm going to bring your brother back to life. And she's like, I know everyone will come back to life one day. I know anyone who believes in you eventually are going to come back at the last day. You're going to resurrect everybody. And Jesus makes this profound statement in verse 25. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never truly die. Do you believe this? And she says, yes, I believe. I believe that you're Messiah. I believe you're God come into the world to teach us how to live and love. And so she calls to her sister and she says, the teacher is here. Jesus is here and he's asking for you. And so Mary comes out and Martha has it a little bit more together. You know, she comes up to Jesus and she's like, you should have been here. Mary comes up to Jesus and falls at his feet and says, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And she is just deeply moved. She is distraught. She is upset. And it's really interesting. It says Jesus was deeply disturbed in his spirit. And some of your translations would say that he was angry. He wasn't angry with her because she was upset. He was angry at what had happened. That there was death, that there was sickness, that there was sadness in the world. And so he asks her, he says, where have you put him? And so they tell him where they uh where lazarus is buried and all these mourners are there crying and mary is there crying and it says jesus begins to weep with them i love that image that we have a god who when we weep he weeps he doesn't look at us and say i wonder what it's like to be human and feel emotion you know he's not this robotic god in the sky but he's a god whose heart breaks when ours breaks and so he follows them to the tomb and they get to the tomb and it's a cave and they rolled a stone in front of it and he says, take the stone away. And they're like, Lord, he's been dead for four days. He's going to stink. The body has begun to decompose. Don't do this. The sisters are already upset. Can you imagine? It's essentially digging up their dead loved one. You know, let them grieve. Let them move on. And he says, if you believe, you'll see the glory of God. And so they remove the stone. And Jesus begins to pray. And he says, Father, I know you always hear me. But I only mention it now so that the people here know that I have a direct line to you. And he says, I want people to believe that it's you who sent me. And then he shouted with a loud voice. He says, Lazarus, come here. Come out of there. Come over here. And all of a sudden, it says, the dead man walked out of the grave. And he's bound up in all the linens that they wrap him up. And Jesus says, unwrap him. Let him go free. And so that's the story, and I want to pull out a couple things here because I think it gives us some insight into when Jesus waits to do a miracle. Because some of us are waiting for Jesus to do a miracle. I wrote down a miracle on this card, and I'm still waiting for it. And maybe there's a place in your er uh, life where you're still praying and waiting for a miracle. The first thing I want to look at is in verses 5 and 6. When Jesus waits, he gives us a reason about why he's waiting. See, Jesus never waits to show up and show off in our lives, in our communities, in our churches, unless he has a really good reason. Jesus doesn't forget about us or get distracted doing something else. You know, he's not up in heaven and he's like, oh, it's an angelic bowling league and I forgot all about your problem. No, he's deeply invested. He never forgets. 
He's there with you every step of the way. He doesn't get distracted. He doesn't think, you know what, something more important than you and your needs came up, and so I've put you on the back burner. No, if he's waiting, it's because he has a strategic reason. He has a good reason. And he gives the reason here. He says, there's two reasons that I'm doing this. One, so that I can be glorified. And two, so that you can believe. The glory of God is more important than us getting our miracle. If we have a right understanding of who God is, if we truly understand how big and beautiful and good he is, his glory, him getting what he deserves from the people that he created is more important than us getting what we want. And he says here, we can wait for the miracle for Lazarus because the glory of God is more important. Anytime Jesus does a miracle, yes, there's usually benefits for us in the process, but ultimately every miracle is about giving God glory and teaching people to have more faith and belief in God. And that's exactly what happens in this story. But you see in verse 21, it's the same accusation from both sisters. If you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And this is the same thing that we say to Jesus when something happens in our life. And we're like, why did it happen like that, Jesus? Why didn't you show up? Where were you? Why didn't we see you act in our world? But the absence of Jesus' power doesn't mean the absence of his presence. Just because you don't see Jesus supernaturally show up and show off, that doesn't mean that he's not there and he's not working. That doesn't mean that he's not working below the surface or in ways that we may not understand for years later. Jesus is usually long at work before we even realize we have a need or we have a problem or we need a miracle. He's already working to take care of that. So when I was moving up here to start a church in Philadelphia, I was coming up with Darby. We had two days to find a place to live, and I was super stressed. I was trying to quit my job down there. At the same time, the Send Network was going to start funding me at some point, and there was this gap in there where I would just have no money. At the same time, I'm trying to come up here and find a place to live. And so we're driving up from Tennessee up to Philadelphia, and I am stressed, stressed to the max. And I'm like, what am I doing? This is craziness. I'm starting a church in a place I don't know. Why am I doing this? You know, the safer, better things to do. And um, I'm just stressed out of my mind. And Darby begins to pray for me. And in the midst of praying, we said, Lord, we know that the place we're going is very expensive. I don't know how we're going to afford it. I don't know how this funding is going to work out. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how we're going to find a place. God, will you just remind me that you're God that's in control? I know you could even give me a place for free to stay. And we stopped at a rest stop, and I had an email. And it was a guy over in Jersey, right on the Jersey-Philly line. And he said, hey, I heard from a friend of a friend of a friend that you're moving up to Philly to start a church. I have an apartment over here that I'm not using. And I just want you to know you're welcome to use it for free if you want to until you get settled. And I'm like, what? Now this guy, things have been going on in his life that he was moving from Philly back to uh, the south. And he had heard from a friend of a friend. Jesus had been working long before I got in that car to drive up to Philadelphia. Long before I felt the stress, he was already working. And just because you don't see Jesus working right now, it doesn't mean he's not there. He is there, and he is working, and he's doing powerful, amazing things. And when he does show up and show off, you're going to see how long and how much he's been doing. Jesus begins to tell Martha here about who he is and what he offers. 
this good news that he is the resurrection and the life. Jesus just doesn't promise eternal life someday, somewhere. Jesus offers eternal life that begins now in us as we begin to live and love like he does. See, the good news of Jesus, the gospel is what the Bible calls it. It turns our bad news into good news. See, she's looking at the death of her brother and she says, this is nothing but bad. And Jesus has a way of taking the worst things in our lives and bringing good out of them, bringing growth in us and good for other people. The good news of Jesus begins working in us and through us to affect everyone around us, and it begins to change our whole story. Have you ever seen a movie or read a book and you're like, I don't know if I like this story. And then you get to the end and the ending is so good it makes all the rest of the story work. That's what Jesus does in our life. He's the good ending that begins to rework the worst parts of our story. And then I wanted to touch on here how Jesus is so moved with emotion. It mentions it several times, but in verse 33, it says he was deeply moved in his spirit. And like I said, some of your translations actually say that he was angry in his heart. And many times we don't like to think of an angry God. Or if we do think of an angry God, I feel like we have a really... Uh, skewed view of an angry God that sometimes the church paints this picture of God's got a giant club and he's got some nails in it and he's like just sin one more time I really want to smack you with this that's how the church sometimes makes God appear but that's not what Jesus looks like what is he angry at here is he angry at the people who are crying because the man his friend Lazarus has died no he weeps with them he's not angry at them he's angry at death he's angry at evil we have a God who looks down on earth and he says, that child has been abused. I'm angry about that. That person is starving. I'm angry about that. That person is homeless. I'm angry about it. That person has cancer. That person has a death sentence uh, because of this health condition, and I'm angry about it. Those people are infertile, and I'm angry about it. He looks at what's evil and what's broken in his world, and he says, this is not the way I made this world. This is not how I intended it to be. This isn't right. God looks down and he says, I want to do something about this. And that's why Jesus Christ came into the world to begin to change us, and he's going to create a new world. He's going to fix what's broken. And while we're here, we're going to do the work of Jesus Christ and fix what's broken in us and in others and around us. But Jesus is angry at the evil and the brokenness in this world. He weeps when we weep. And you see here in verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible. If you ever have to memorize a verse for anything, John 11, 35. When I was a kid uh, in church, they used to do this thing where it would be a competition and be like, memorize a Bible verse each week and get a prize. And I was like, John 11, 35, every week. You know, and if you went to a different person, a different volunteer every week, you could keep getting prizes. So I'd be like... John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. And they're like, oh, that kid, you know, he's like, he found the shortest verse. He got around the system. So if you ever have to learn a verse, that's the one. It may be the shortest verse, but it may be the deepest, most important verse in the New Testament. Because this tells us something about God. That God's not angry with us, he weeps with us. He loves us. That when your heart is breaking, God's not sitting up in heaven and like, oh, going to plan. <laughs> no, God is pouring out tears when you cry. When your heart breaks and you think, I can't go one more day, God feels every emotion that you're feeling. We have a God who weeps with us, a God who mourns with us, a God who feels deeply 
and resonates with us when we suffer and when we mourn. And then you see here, at the end of the story, Jesus says, roll away the stone, and they're like, don't do that. There's a dead man in there. That's over. It's done with. Don't roll away the stone. That dream has died. And I think some of us, we had something, maybe it was a miracle we were praying for, maybe a dream we were reaching for, something we thought was going to happen, and it didn't turn out like we thought it would, and so we're just like, it's dead now. I buried it, and I covered it with rocks, and I don't want to mess with it anymore, and if I began to pull those rocks off, it would stink, it would reek, and I don't want to go back there, and I just want to leave it alone. Sometimes God has to let our dream die so that he can resurrect a better dream for us. And sometimes what we thought was the right thing or what we thought was going to happen, he had a better and bigger plan, and he had to let our dream die so that he could resurrect a better one. And so what I want to challenge you with today to take away from this as we end our series is roll the stone away from your dreams that you've let die, your miracles that you thought will never come. Hope again. See, cynicism happens when we've been disappointed in an area where we care deeply. Cynicism doesn't happen because we didn't care. You just don't feel anything. You're indifferent. Cynicism happens because you care deeply about something and it didn't turn out like you thought it would. It was a dream that died. It was a miracle that didn't happen. It was a time when Jesus waited and you don't know why. And many times we become cynical in one area where we were disappointed, but cynicism never stays in one area. It begins to spread to every area of our life until pretty soon even the best news, we think, well, it's only a matter of time until that all falls apart. The only way to cure yourself of cynicism is to go back to the thing, the place where you were disappointed and hope again. And you say, if I hope again, I could be hurt again. Yes. But if you hope again, you might just see a miracle. You might just roll away those stones and it won't stink because it's dead underneath. But God has created something new and something alive. So dream again. Hope again. And set miraculous expectations for God. See, sometimes if Jesus waited to show up in a place where we really needed a miracle, we think, fine, I'll just set such low expectations from God from now on, I'll never be disappointed. But Jesus said, um, many times you do not receive because you do not ask. And how many times have we set such low expectations for God, we don't ask for anything big, and so that's exactly what we receive. And so I hope the end of our miracle series encourages you to dream big dreams. To don't let your dreams die, but roll away from the stones and hope again. Because Jesus is still rolling stones. He's still doing miracles. And he's still at work in our world. I know the God who, in an instant, could find a place for me to live for free. The God who many times when, uh, I remember one time Darth and I sat down and we were meeting over at the Ardmore Music Hall. And we couldn't afford to continue meeting there or meet more there. And I was like, this thing's over unless we find another place to meet. And so Darbs and I sat down and we said, this date in February, if God hasn't done something, it's done. We're quitting. We're shutting it down. It's over. I've never shared the story with you guys, except for Darby. That day happened to be the day that this place, The Rock, called me and said, you can use this space. On the exact day that I said, if nothing happens here, God, it's over. It's done. It's time to give up. And God, on that day, gave me a phone call and said, hey, you can use this space now. We've worked it all out. There is a God who's doing miracles. He's done miracles in my life before, and he'll do miracles again, yeah. and he'll do miracles in your life too. 
Let's pray. I'm going to invite the band to come up. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you're a miraculous God. You didn't stay in the grave, but you came back to life. And I believe that because you came back to life, everything you said is true. And the way that you lived and loved is the best way to live life and to love people. And you've invited people to become your followers, your disciples, to model their lives on the way that you lived and loved. And I believe that this world would be a better place if we lived like you lived and we loved like you love. But God, we cannot do impossible things without supernatural strength. And so, God, that is why we come to you and we say, do a miracle in us. Change us to live in love like you. Do a miracle through us that we might share with people far away from God that you're not a God who's angry with them, but you're a God who's angry about a broken world and loves us so much that you came and died in our place. God, do a great work in our city and in our community and in our church, not for our sake, but so that everyone can know the name of Jesus. And God, if there's people out here who have taken a dream and given up on it and buried it under stones and think, I don't want to mess with it anymore because it broke my heart so much, that dream stinks and I don't want to go back to it. Lord, give us the courage to roll away the stone and to see what you're resurrecting in our lives. I pray all these things like I believe Jesus Christ would pray. Amen.